you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me tonight to Genesis, the 13th chapter. You know, as I speak on radio and television before college and business groups and worship groups such as this, I find that many people in life are searching. During the course of our lifetime, I think that probably everybody in this room will ask at least two basic questions. One of these questions being, is there a God? Now, you know you don't really need the Bible to know that there is a God. Even the heathen without the Bible, they can look into the universe and they can see the intelligence and power of the Creator in the universe. For instance, if you uh, took our planet Earth and you tried to fit the planet Earth inside the sun, how many times could our planet fit inside of our sun? Over a million times. Now, is our sun a small sun or a large one? It's actually a small sun. And the pastor tonight, before he shared with us how great thou art, he pointed out that there's at least a hundred billion other suns in our galaxy. In uh, the new science magazine, Discover, and in the TV Guide, they said there's as many as 400 billion suns in our galaxy alone. And our galaxy is one of a hundred billion other galaxies. Well, nobody can begin to grasp all this. It would take 30,000 light years to reach the center of our galaxy alone, traveling at the speed of light. Well, all these stars and planets and solar systems are all whirling around out there in perfect mathematical and chronological precision. The universe is so precise that we set our space shots by it, we set our clocks by it, and we can tell scores of years ahead of time when a comet, such as Halley's Comet, will visit our solar system, such as in 1986. Yes, King David said the heavens declare the glory of God, the Creator. But King David also said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And as marvelous as the universe is, the human body is marvelous in its own right. I'm a serious amateur photographer, and uh, even the finest optics in the world, such as Carl Zeiss optics, don't begin to compare to the marvels of the human eye. Our human eye in photography terms would be like a telephoto zoom lens that goes from macro close-up to infinity, and our eyes can see in almost any light condition. And then there's our blood system. Uh, in our body, we have over 100,000 miles of arteries and capillaries, and the blood whizzes through this whole thing in just a few seconds, and it carries with it nutrients and oxygen, and as it whizzes by our lungs, it deposits carbon dioxide. And then uh, they say to build the equivalent of the human brain would take a thousand computers, and each computer would have to be as big as a telephone switchboard that can handle all the telephone calls of New York City. And it would take a building bigger than the Empire State Building to house all these computers. It would take all the water of Niagara Falls to generate enough electricity to run them and all the water of Niagara Falls to keep them cool. And yet such computers could not make the decision of a simple idiot unless they were first programmed by a human brain. 
And then there's the birth of a newborn baby. Yes, the human body itself declares the handiwork of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And scientists tell us that the world of the atom is even more amazing than the world of the universe. Each atom has a characteristic number of electrons and they whirl around the nucleus in precise orbits and have their own identity. Now, I used to work with men of science in a laboratory and they did not have a problem with recognizing that there is an intelligent creator behind the universe. But they did have a problem in knowing that intelligent creator in uh, uh, acknowledging the fact that this intelligent creator has communicated. And that brings us to perhaps the second question that everybody in this room will ask or has already asked. At some point in our life, we will find ourselves in a situation that we can't handle. And our backs are going to be shoved against the wall. And our hearts are going to be tearing out inside of us and we're going to be going through the greatest emotional battle of our life. And those are the hardest kind of battles to handle, aren't they? The emotional ones that go on inside of us that we can't give to anybody else. And in that moment, when our heart is tearing out inside of us, we won't care what the preacher has to say. We won't care what Manny Brotman has to say. We're going to want to know for ourselves, is the Bible true? Is the Bible the Word of God? Now, on the surface, there are many evidences that the Bible is true. The Bible is historically accurate. For instance, Israeli generals study the Bible so that they can learn Old Testament battle routes, and they use them in their modern conflict. The Bible is geographically accurate. Archaeologists study the Bible to locate ancient cities. And the Bible does work in the lives of those of us who put it to the test. But there's one other evidence that the Bible is the communication of the Creator. And that's the Bible's ability to foretell the future. Now some might say, Manny, that's no big deal. After all, there's plenty of people in the world today that predict the future. What are some of the name tags or labels that we give to people that predict the future? What do we call them? There's foreseers, fortune tellers, soothsayers, prophets, psychics. Who would a very famous psychic be, for instance? Jean Dixon's one. There's Edward Casey. There are others. When Jean Dixon predicts the future, is she always right? No, but there is one place that predicts the future, not only in general terms, but in specific, precise, detailed predictions, and that place is right 100% of the time. And that place is the Bible, the Word of God. Now, there's another situation going on the, in the world today, and every time you turn on the television news or the radio news or read the newspaper, this particular area of the world is mentioned, and I'm not talking about the temporary situation in Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq. I am talking about the Middle East and Jerusalem. World War III will not be precipitated over Iran, Iraq, Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, or Laos, World War III will be precipitated over Jerusalem. The Bible calls Jerusalem a cup of trembling and a rock of offense. Now, some might say, Manny, Jerusalem and Israel, they're thousands of miles away. How in the world can they affect me over here? The reality of the situation is that in the Middle East in 1973, a war was held. 
OPEC quadrupled the price of oil in a single day and set the world into an inflationary spin. And what did indeed happen in the Middle East has affected every individual family and business represented in this room. Now, I would like to tie that situation, the Israeli-Arab situation, in with the Bible's ability to predict the future and show how it relates to us as individuals, beginning with Genesis 13. By the way, I'm using the Bible from the Hebrew Publishing Company. If you have some other translation, you'll have the same scripture, but it might be the verse before or the verse after. Verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Years ago, God spoke to a man called Abram. We also know him by what other name? Abraham. And we think of Abraham particularly as the father of what group of people? The Jewish people, but not limited to that. He said, Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west, all the land that you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And the reason today that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people is not because they've won four major wars. It's not because the United Nations or the United States have recognized the statehood of Israel. It's because God has given them the land by divine contract, and only God can take it away. Now, he's not the God of the Jews only. And to love the Jews doesn't mean to hate the Arabs. Amen? On the contrary, because God loves the Arabs, and he loves the whole world, and he loves you and me, he wanted a man of faith, Abraham, and his descendants to take the message of his love, his word, and his Messiah to the whole world. And we Jews, despite our terrible sin against God, by his grace, we were privileged to be that people. Now in Genesis 17, we see some promises to another group of people looking at the 18th verse. And Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Ishmael was the head of what group of people? The Arabs. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, I will make him fruitful, I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget Ishmael, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear unto thee at the set time in the next year. Now we have an interesting situation in Genesis 17. We have Abraham, the first Jew, praying for Ishmael, the first Arab. And isn't that the relationship God intended between the Jews and the Arabs, that instead of killing each other, we would pray for each other? You know, in the early years of our ministry, I used to have an Arab brother come up to our office and we'd fellowship a while and then he would take some messianic materials and we'd pray for the salvation of the Arab people, we pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. And then with our messianic materials like the five Jewish laws, he went back to work. And he worked with many Jewish salesmen. And as he handed them the five Jewish laws, he would say to these Jewish salesmen, he would say, oh, I'm such a happy Arab because I found the Jewish Messiah of Israel. 
They thought, boy, he's a Michigan, and he's a crazy mixed-up Arab. But you see, God took the hate out of the heart of this Jew. He took the hate out of the heart of that Arab, and he replaced it with his love. And the answer to the Mideast crisis is not more arms, it's not more money, it's not more United Nations resolutions, it's the love of God in Messiah Yeshua, Messiah Jesus. We can pour all the arms and all the money we want into the Mideast, the UN can make all the resolutions at once, but only God can remove the hatred and animosity in the Jewish and Arab heart and replace it with his love. Now, because Abraham prayed for Ishmael, God said, I'm going to do two things. He said, first of all, I'm going to multiply Ishmael, make him fruitful, and make him a great nation. Did God keep that promise that he make the Arabs a great nation? How many Arabs are there in the world today? There's actually over 156 million Arabs in the Arab League of 20 nations plus Egypt. Yes, God did indeed make Ishmael a great nation. Now, God had a second part to that promise. He said Ishmael would beget 12 princes. Most of us have heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, but most likely few of us have heard of the 12 tribes of Arabia. We recently started distributing a book called Arabs, Christians, and Jews by Jim Hefley. He researched the life of Ishmael, and guess how many princes Ishmael begot? 12, exactly as Jacob did. You see, when God makes a promise, and that promise may be over 4,000 years old in the Bible. Man may forget God's promises, but God doesn't forget his promises. Hmm. Now you say, Manning, I can see how through force of circumstance and coincidence that could come to pass. But Manny, I would like to really see some Bible prophecies in my generation that are indisputable that I can sink my teeth into. If you'll move ahead with me to Isaiah, the 11th chapter... And we'll look some, at some promises that are more current for our generation. Isaiah chapter 11. You know, somebody once said, how do you really know the Bible is true? How do you really know the Bible is the word of God? And the pointed answer was the Jew. The Jew is the living proof that the Bible is true. You say, what do you mean, man? Well, the Jews were conquered in 70 A.D. by Titus and the Roman legions. Normally, when a small group of people is conquered by a much more powerful nation, in two or three generations, what happens to the identity of the smaller group of people? They become what? Assimilated. They lose their identity. But for over 19 centuries, for over 40 generations, the Jews have refused to lose their identity, and there is only one answer. And that answer is God. Now, if I ask you today how many Jewish people there are in the world, what would your guesstimate be in the millions? There's about 15 million Jewish people according to the Jewish yearbook. Now, that's based on synagogue statistics, and many Jews are not necessarily identified with synagogues. If I ask you how many countries the Jewish people live in, what would your guess be? All of them is the answer I normally receive. Israel has immigrants from at least 110 countries of the world. But chances are, wherever you go, you'll find the Jewish people. Now, the late Catherine Coleman was asked on national television, Catherine, in your personal opinion, what do you believe is the greatest proof to our generation that the Bible is true? 
whether you agree with her ministry or not, which was controversial to many, Catherine's answer was very interesting. She did not say that I believe the Bible is true because people are healed of terminal illnesses in my meetings such as cancer. Catherine said, I believe the greatest proof to this generation that the Bible is true are the prophecies today being fulfilled in the land of Israel. And I would tend to agree with Catherine looking at verse 12 of Isaiah 11. And he, God, shall set up an ensign for the nation, and he shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Not only did God say that he would regather the Jews from the four corners of the earth, don't turn to it now, but in Zephaniah, the third chapter, the ninth verse, God said, I will restore to them a pure language. What pure language did God restore to the Jews? Hebrew. Now, you might wonder why Hebrew is called a pure language. That's because there's no curse words in Hebrew. When an Israeli gets upset, he borrows certain words from surrounding nations. Now, if you have not yet figured out what language you're going to speak once you get to heaven, not that I'm biased or prejudiced, but since only pure things enter the kingdom of God, and Hebrew is called a pure language, I suggest a crash course in Hebrew in anticipation of the Lord's return. Now, isn't it amazing that out of all the thousands of languages and dialects on the face of this planet, that only one language in all of history has become revived and become a modern spoken language, Hebrew. That Zephaniah was sure a lucky guesser. A naval officer came up to me in Portsmouth, Virginia. He said, Manny, do you know what an ensign is? He said, an ensign is a special flag that a ship flies. It's a national flag. So that when other ships see that ship, they can tell what nation it's coming from by its flag. And what God is saying here is that he's going to take a nation, the nation of Israel. And he's going to make Israel like a flag, like a banner. And he's going to wave Israel for the whole world to see. And the manner in which God is going to do it is he's going to regather the Jews from the four corners of the earth. Now, could that refer to the Babylonian captivity? No, that was a local captivity. That, that only lasted how long? Seventy years. This is talking about a worldwide dispersion. And imagine when Isaiah wrote this, Columbus had not yet even discovered America, proving that there was a whole wide round world out there. But Columbus and the scientists of his day, they could have moved science up a couple thousand years. They would have known the world was round if they merely read in Isaiah where it says that God sits on the circle of the earth. But someday science will catch up with the Bible. Now, if I were a young Jewish man at the beginning of the century and somebody said to me, Manny, your people will have their own land and their own language again, I would say that's ridiculous. We Jews have been scattered for 19 centuries across the face of the earth. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the organization. Israel was under a British protectorate. Many in the church were saying, God is through with the Jews. They missed the time of their visitation. And many in the church said, we are the new Israel. And they took the blessings for the church and they left the curses for the Jews. You know what I'm talking about? God said, hold on, fellas. 
He said, though every Jew in the world reject the Messiah, though every man be found a liar, let God be found true because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And when God makes a promise to a man called Abraham, God is going to keep that promise though the whole world lie in sin and iniquity. God will keep his word for his own name, honor and glory and sake. If God did not keep his promises to physical Israel, the church today could not trust God for a single word of scripture. Now, we don't have to turn anywhere else in the Bible to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. When was it fulfilled? On May 14, 1948, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion stood in Tel Aviv's Museum Hall and he proclaimed the statehood of Israel and a nation was born in a single day exactly as the Bible said 27 centuries earlier. Now what God told the prophet Isaiah, he also confirmed to the Jewish prophet Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah, the days are coming when it will no longer be said, the Lord liveth, that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And when we think of the Jews coming out of Egypt, what event in history do we call that? How do we name that event? The Passover, the Exodus. And throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament, God is primarily known as the God of the Passover. In the synagogues every Shabbat, we Jews remind ourselves of the Passover. It's such a wonderful time of God's deliverance. In the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, the Passover is mentioned more than all the other Jewish holidays put together. But one day God told Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, I'm not going to be known as the God of the Passover anymore, but in the future I will be known as the Lord liveth that brought the children of Israel from the lands of the north and from all the lands whither I had driven them. And I will bring them back to their land that I gave to their fathers. And that's the key. God gave it to their fathers. In other words, dear friends, in the sight of the creator of this universe, you and I have lived to see a miracle that is greater than the Passover, greater than millions of Jews leaving Egypt after the ten plagues, being led by a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night, God's air conditioning and heating, greater than crossing the Red Sea on dry ground with the water standing up in great walls, and greater than being fed with manna, a heavenly food in the wilderness for 40 years. In the sight of the creator of this universe, we have seen a miracle that is greater than the Passover. And yet they say that sometimes we get so close to the trees that we can't see the forest. Brethren, if I had a choice of any generation in all of history to be alive in, I would choose this generation because we have seen more Bible prophecy fulfilled than any generation that has walked the face of this earth. With the exception of the prophecies Yeshua, Jesus fulfilled, proving he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And yet the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And as Mordecai said to Esther one day, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Dear brethren, in the economy of God, I cannot believe that he has brought you and I, the elect, to the kingdom for such a time as this, merely by accident of birth to play church and to play religion. I believe in the economy of God he has brought you and I, the elect, to the kingdom for such a time as this, to see these miracles in Israel, to see the outpouring of the latter rain across all denominations, 
and that God either wants us to be hot for God or to be cold, either get on board or get off, but don't be lukewarm unless he spew us out of his mouth. You'll either love me or hate me by the end of the night. Bless your heart. <laughs> that was in Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15. God told the Jewish prophet Amos, he said the Jews are going to rebuild the waste city. What are the Jews now doing in Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem? Rebuilding them, modern metropolises. God said that they would plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. He said they would make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. And in short history, Israel produces enough agriculture not only for its own citizens, but to export to other countries at great revenue. God says, I have planted them on their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. Now, according to the Bible, will the Jews ever be forced to leave Israel again? No way. But that does not mean that enemy nations will not try to annihilate the Jews and push them into the ocean. And in Isaiah, the 19th chapter, you have a picture of the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. Isaiah, chapter 19. By the way, that last quote was from Amos, the 9th chapter, the 14th and 15th verse. We're looking at verse 16 in Isaiah 19. In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. It says the Egyptians would be like unto women. When some women see a mouse, what do they do? By the way, I've gotten reports that some men react that way. You might have heard it over the radio news in the Six-Day War. The Egyptians were in their Sinai with their army tanks, and they saw Israeli foot soldiers coming with rifles. And what did the Egyptians in the armored tanks do? They got up, and in today's vernacular, they split. Now, is an armored tank more powerful than a rifle? Well, you don't have to be a general from the Pentagon to figure that out. It didn't make any sense for the Egyptians in their armor tanks to flee unless they were like unto women, unless they were afraid and fearing because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts. We have other cases that we have documented in books like The Ghost of Hagar by George Otis and Israel, a secret documentary by Vance Lambert, where you had small numbers of Jewish soldiers in a foxhole surrounded by far superior enemy forces. It looked like these few Jewish soldiers would get killed, and all of a sudden the enemies, they got up and they ran away. And when they were questioned later, they were asked, why did you run from those few Jewish soldiers? You could have easily killed them. They said, sir, you must be mistaken. We didn't see a few Jewish soldiers there. We saw hundreds and hundreds. Now, brethren, either all these Arabs be glasses or they saw the angels of God. And I believe that once again God is sending his angels to defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? Because we Jews are so worthy? Of course not. We have sinned time and time again against God. Israel is called by God and Hosea as an unfaithful wife. But God, by his grace and mercy, is showing a pattern of all long-suffering in Israel. Now, one might wonder, why in the world do these nations attack Israel? Could it be that they do not know the word of God? Could it be that the Egyptians do not realize that in Ezekiel 29, verse 6, God says, the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord? 
because they've been a staff of reeds, Israel, what does God mean? A shepherd uses a staff to guide his sheep to protect them and to discipline them if necessary. But God goes on to expound it further in Zechariah 1.15. He told the prophet to cry aloud and spare not. He said, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. If we have a problem with Zionism, we have a problem with God. God says, I am very sore displeased with the nations that are at ease. Are you and I a nation at ease regarding Israel and the Jewish people? God says, for I was but a little displeased, and they held forward the evil. In other words, God meant to judge us Jews. God meant to discipline us Jews, but these nations did more than God intended, and they held forward the evil. And God, in that same chapter of Ezekiel 29, said to the Egyptians in the 14th and 15th verse, because you've been a staff of reed to Israel, because you've helped forward the evil, you're going to become a base nation no more to rule over the nations of the world. Now, to whom did God say that? Did he say it to a puny little power like the United States? You say, Manny, you are Michigana, you are crazy. What do you mean, puny little power like the United States? How long has the United States been around? A couple hundred years. How long has Egypt been around? thousands of years. Egypt once ruled what was then most of this planet that was known. Egypt was the land of the pharaohs, the pyramids, the greatest artifacts and artisans the world had ever seen. And God said to the Egyptians, you're going to know that I'm the Lord and you're going to become a base nation, no more to rule over the nations of the world. Did God keep that promise to the Egyptians? In recent times, the president of Egypt came to the president of the United States with his hand out for money and for armament. And this great proud nation, Egypt, which once ruled most of the world, has become a nation on the verge of economic and political collapse. Egypt touched Israel, and Egypt fell as a world power. Spain touched Israel, and Spain fell as a world power. Rome touched Israel, and Rome fell as a world power. Germany came against Israel and she fell. And the Bible in Ezekiel 37 through 39 says that when Russia, that great bear from the north, comes down to attack Israel, the devastation on Russia will be so great that the Israelis will hire out continual men of employment who will bury the dead Russians for seven months and burn their weapons for seven years. Because God's word says, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. I like the way the Living Bible has it. He that touches you sticks his finger in God's eye. This message, entitled The Israeli-Arab Situation, by Manny Brotman, President and Founder of the Messianic Jewish Movement International, will continue on the other side.